0: Hello, and welcome to this vaccine education roundtable series for equitable expanded pediatric vaccines. I'm your moderator. My name is Dr. Mati Fatwayo-Davis. I am the Director of Health for the City of St. Louis, and I am an Associate Medical Editor for the COVID-19 Health Equity Resources. I'd like to introduce our esteemed panelists to you today. First, I'd like to introduce Dr. Rhea Boyd. She is a pediatrician, public health advocate, and scholar. She also co-developed the Conversation at Greater Than COVID. Welcome, Dr. Boyd. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to chat today. Next, I'd like to introduce Dr. Rana Chakraborty, physician scientist and professor of pediatrics at the Department of Pediatrics and Adolescent Medicine at Mayo Clinic College of Medicine, who is also currently a member of IDSA's board of directors. Welcome and thank you for being here.
1: And thank you very much for the invitation. Real a pleasure and privilege to be able to speak to you all today.
0: Next, I'd like to introduce Dr. Buddy Creech, the director of the Vanderbilt Vaccine Research Program, also the ED Carell Johnson Chair and Professor for the Department of Pediatrics in the Division of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. He is also the current president of the Pediatric Infectious Diseases Society. Welcome, Dr. Creech.
2: Thanks, Madi. Glad to be here.
0: Next, I'd like to introduce Dr. Bill Mahler. He is the Scientific Director, Clinical and Community Trials at the Stanley Manny Children's Research Institute and an Associate Professor of Pediatric at Ann and Robert H. Lurie Children's Hospital of Chicago and Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. A mouthful welcome to all of you.
3: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So let's dive right in. This is an exciting time. As a mother myself of a five year old and a two year old, I know personally how difficult it has been for caregivers and parents of children of this youngest age group to wait for over two and a half years now for this vaccine. So, as we all know, the FDA and CDC recently authorized COVID 19 vaccines for children aged six months to five years old. Can one of you please start us off by reviewing the research in terms of outcomes? For safety and efficacy that was considered for authorization. Buddy, you, you already know that you should likely do the right thing and start us off.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I can start. And for full disclosure, with Evan Anderson and Vladimir Bethud, uh, we, we were the, the co-principal investigators for the Moderna Kid Code Study. So I, I want to make sure that that was sort of stated with NIH funding there at the beginning. Yeah, so this has been an interesting time over the last year or so because we've heard both sides of the argument. We've heard, why is it taking so long? and we've heard, wait, this has gone too quickly. The the reality is, is that we don't treat children like little adults. And we wanted to make sure that we found that exact right dose that was just enough uh, to give us a really good immune response, but not so much that it caused a great deal of fever or arm pain or achiness that we might experience with a vaccine. And indeed, that's, that's where we've gotten to. Even in these youngest children, for both the Moderna and for the Pfizer products, we can move the dose down to a quarter of the adult dose for Moderna, a tenth of the adult dose for Pfizer, and we can generate immune responses that really mirror what we see in young adults. That's the the fantastic news. But the also great news is that when we look at the side effect profile of these vaccines, even in our youngest children down to six months of age, it matches what we see with other childhood vaccines it's fever in a small proportion of children, it's achiness or especially fatigue, which as a parent myself, I don't think I've ever had a parent complain that something made their kid take an extra long nap the next day. So I think we're dealing with a vaccine that has been proven in tens of thousands of children to be both safe and highly effective at doing what we want it to do, which is to mount a really good immune response to this virus.
0: I think that is the best summary that I've heard about this to date, which is why I was so excited to convene this panel, because there's so much misinformation around this and a lot of valid concerns from people who may not have as comfortable a health, you know, grasp of health literacy. So I really appreciate you walking us through that. Bill, anything you'd like to add here that you think is important for either you know, our ID colleagues or other people in the community who are also going to be benefiting from this video to know?
3: Yeah, I'd like to add a couple of things. First of all, like Buddy, I've participated as a site PI in the Moderna study, just for full disclosure, but I think it's worth remembering a couple of things. Despite the anxiety that many parents have had in waiting for this vaccine to become available, this vaccine development went as quickly as could be done safely. And I think those two things are important to remember. Safety has always been a priority when it comes to every clinical trial in children, especially this one. And the urgency of the pandemic has driven this to happen much faster than I think we would have anticipated at the start of the pandemic. That came with a cost, it came with a financial cost and the government bore most of that cost. But I don't want people to think that these vaccines were rushed in any way uh, or that they were unnecessarily delayed. I think this was an appropriate response to an urgent
0: situation. I am so glad you touched on that point because as a director of a major health department, here in St. Louis, I keep hearing that, right? That this felt rushed, but also the opposite end. Like, why was there such a delay? And what does that mean for, you know, how this is gonna impact our kids? So, so glad you touched on that. And Rana, I'm gonna ask you to sort of round us out here. Any thoughts or anything that you also think is important for us to, to talk about before we move on to some of the policy issues here?
1: Now, in addition to Bill and Buddy's excellent points, let's look at the context. We've had more than 440 children aged less than four years who have died of invasive COVID uh, in the United States. Mm. And thousands of others have been hospitalized as well. So we need to keep that background that COVID or invasive SARS-CoV-2 infection was not a benign disease in this age group by any stretch of the imagination. The other thing worth thinking about especially and very relevant for now is that there's been a surge with the omicron variant and that's this has increased the number of hospitalizations for children under five years of age i think this current surge the numbers who have been hospitalized are five times greater than the previous surge witnessed with the delta variant a couple of years ago so let's have some context as well about how critically important it is not to overlook this vulnerable population.
0: Gosh, I'm so glad you brought us home with that right at the top of this discussion because you know there's again around this misinformation theme that I think is so important for us to keep addressing throughout this hour that we have together is the fallacy around how children are maybe not as severely impacted or that this may not be as as serious of as of an issue. As I tell people here in St. Louis, even one child that has to be admitted into a hospital on a ventilator, or unfortunately, who could succumb to death is too much, especially in the context as well of long COVID, especially in the context of developmental issues that we just don't have a grasp of. I just appreciate you for bringing us back to that context. So Rhea, I'm gonna come May to I you next. Oh, go ahead, you, you, you got more on this issue? Just a little bit of nuance here. Yeah. I think
4: for a lot of parents, it's not just the disinformation that makes them think that kids aren't as affected by COVID. Mm-hmm. You know, back in April when the CDC said estimates that now like 75%, I think it was, of kids and adolescents, you know, kids under 18 have had a COVID infection. I think parents are also judging by their personal experience with COVID that mm-hmm. their child fared mildly or their child had no symptoms at all when other family members did or parents are actually judging by what their pediatricians tell them. Like at my clinic right now, we have a handout. If you have COVID, right, because we're having a surge in COVID in our area, just like everywhere in the country is. If you have COVID, our handout seeks to reassure parents by letting them know that 80% of kids who have COVID infections have a mild infection. So I think it's also that parents have personal experience and they have accurate information from their pediatrician once their child's actually infected, that, you know, you can be reassured that your child likely will fare fine. We do have concerns about long-term, what the other consequences of these infections might be that are still yet to be known as we continue to learn more about this virus. But I think that also shapes how parents think about whether or not their kids need the vaccine.
0: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think we need to really help people figure out how to balance those two seemingly competing issues, but I don't actually think so. As we talk about that, and we'll get to the clinical sort of approach later on. This is a fantastic way for us to frame the discussion moving forward. So I'm going to come back to you, Rhea, because I have you primed for this next question. And I've really been wanting someone to address this head on. We all know that Congress is not currently committed to additional spending for COVID-19. Rhea, can you talk to us about how this will impact children, especially? And, and, And here I'm most most concerned about those from minoritized and marginalized communities. Can you talk to us about this and and maybe a shout to what we can do from our positions, people who are in clinics, people who are in research labs, like how will this impact children and, and what can we do?
4: I think first maybe setting a bit of context, like with buddy who started out by saying, you know, families waited two and a half years and for some families it was like well i needed that time to feel more confident that the vaccine was safe but for others families that wait was too long either way in that two and a half years much of the country has tired of thinking daily about their risk of COVID when they leave their house to go to work, to go to camp, to go to school, whatever their activities are. People are trying to get back to whatever semblance of quote unquote normal they had pre-pandemic. And to see Congress continue to deprioritize COVID by taking funding now when we finally have authorization of a vaccine for kids five years and below, it only furthers in parents' and families' minds that COVID isn't that serious right now. If we had a continual clear messaging campaign from the government backed up by continual funding, that would say to people, this is still an issue. This is still a problem. And actually it's an ever evolving problem that keeps changing. And the current strain we have is more immune evasive and more contagious than ever before. But when we kind of disassemble all of the machinery we put together to let people know How serious COVID was and what they could do if they wanted to protect themselves or if unfortunately they got infected. Like now, we don't have those same tools to reach out to families. So, one, I think practically speaking, we don't have, in terms of the communications campaign, which is what I spent a lot of time working on over the last couple of years, we don't have the same access to talk to families anymore because it actually costs money for us to run ads, for us to be on social media, for people to have their online experiences directed towards credible information, all of that was paid for, and we don't have that right now. And so we're overly relying on the medical establishment to give this information to patients and families one by one as they come to the clinic. And when we think about how well the medical establishment has done that for different patient populations, that's where we start to worry about inequity. If we actually, as a health system across the country, do an incredibly poor job of reaching out to families who don't have health insurance, families who are low-income, families who are Black, Hispanic, and Indigenous. We uh-huh. do a poor job. We underfund the Indian Health Service, although they actually did an incredible job early on in the vaccine rollout. Sure they sure. don't have enough supports, typically, to keep up with just common primary care. And so I think right now to see that we don't have funding for COVID means that we also risk not reaching those communities that are always the most difficult to reach because our system isn't built to serve them.
0: Sure. And Rhea, I'll be honest with you, how this conversation plays out at the community-based level, right, is you know, I'm in constant contact with the, with the CEOs of our federally qualified health centers. Without a doubt, these folks in their healthcare, their healthcare institutions single-handedly, single-handedly led the charge in making sure that there was equitable access to care throughout this pandemic. But they relied um, primarily on funds ARPA funds, for example, that are transient, that are absolutely going away literally within the next year. So, what happens to all of those patients and clients and children that relied on their services throughout this time? These are folks that are, that are under resourced and that are underfunded for the most part. So, there has to be a plan if we are not, if Congress is not going to commit to this, for the federal government to take up the charge to take the lead, to put their money where their mouth is, quite literally in regards to equity, in ensuring that federally qualified health centers and the other trusted messengers that were asked to really hold the torch are given the opportunity to do so.
2: Buddy, I see you, you know. Well, I, here. no, I love this. It's so interesting because, you know, we, we we have two places where we need to be able to intervene in these situations. The first is in the clinical studies, making sure there's equitable access to participation in the studies. That's right. That's usually the one that we do a horrendous job in. And then the second one is actually once a vaccine is authorized or approved, getting it out to the community. All right. So for the first one. I mean we did everything in our power so that everybody in the study wasn't a Whitey McWhitey like me and we made sure that there was actual diversity and in fact the federal government did put their money where their mouth was on that part by saying okay there may be some sites you don't enroll as quickly because you're not just taking the the ones who always participate in research but we're going to make certain that when we roll this vaccine out we can say that someone who looks a lot like you participated in this trial whether that was underlying medical comorbidity place you lived urban rural other demographic elements that we that we want to care about a whole lot like we did that and so it feels so challenging for those of us who did those trials and sought to get that part right for the first time and forever to then now be like well, now we can't do anything with it because we don't have the funds and the resources needed yeah. to roll it out. So I, I guess I just want to say, like, we did it, we we did it halfway right again. We just did it the other half rather than the, the one that we often do. So I Rhea's spot on and, and you're yeah. spot on, Matty. We've got to do a better job of making sure that we communicate effectively, that we somehow put vaccines in the communities that need them the most And put trusted leaders there to to really make this move forward. And all of that takes resources. It does.
0: And Rana, I'm sure as an IDSA, you know, board member, there have been sleepless nights as you all have been trying to lead us through this. And now with this impending issue around Congress and funding. Any you know, last thoughts here from you?
1: Well, I'll say we're not there yet. Yeah. And it's as simple as that. Uh, We I'm not sure how far this journey goes, judging by the uptick of cases that are occurring uh, with these variants of variants of Omicron. We have considerable challenges in all communities, but as you know well, when the pandemic first broke through 2020 and 2021, you remember how uh, communities of color were disproportionately affected in terms of overall morbidity and mortality. You remember the, the cases often on that were shown on mainstream media of uh, patients where you just couldn't, where hospitals were constrained because they just didn't have enough space to provide care they needed, and in some cases, provide sadly refrigeration services. So this is very much a work in progress, and. For that to continue with the excellent infrastructure that has been developed in a very short space of time, as buddy alluded to the, the, these nuances to make sure that we were all inclusive in bringing in children and bringing in patients into these vaccine trials across different demographics and looking at that proactively all these nuances that, that, that are there now to really talk to an excellent infrastructure that was developed in a very short space of time on the background of the mRNA platform, but it took resources. It took a collective desire amongst us as a community, regardless of which side of the aisle we, we, we fall on, to say, we've got to do something about this. This is a threat to our livelihoods and to our life lifestyles in general. Well, this continues to be that threat. Mm-hmm. We haven't gotten over this yet. And we still need to continue to fund this on an ongoing basis until we get to the conclusion that we're all hoping for.
3: Maybe I'm being overly optimistic, but I Mm. I actually think there might be a silver lining to this. At our center, we consider access to trials as step one in access to healthcare, Mm. And we learned a lot from participating in the COVID vaccine studies in children about how to get more representation in our studies, which will extend to our other clinical trials as well. And, you know, if we can continue to learn from these experiences, you know, I think we can at least start to make some impact on representation in clinical research more generally, not just in COVID.
0: It was long overdue, Bill, but I love to hear you say that, you know, as a fellow who, with a lot of frustration, saw that that wasn't really built in 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 adequate ways. We've kind of relied heavily on cabs and other things that have historical precedents, but that haven't been looked at with a fine tune. For this moment. I think what's happening around implementation and dissemination science, around people who are really here and, and seeing more uh, clinical trialists include people who are involved in diversity, equity, and inclusion, who are involved in implementation science, include them at the f- start of these trials and not call us at the tail end, has been really encouraging as well. So I hope to see more literature, I hope to see more policy, and more importantly, more funding around this. We're going to switch gears now to sort of the clinical Aspect and Rhea, I'm going to ask you to sort of start us off because you you put yourself in this position because you flagged it at the beginning of the uh, panel here, and when you talked about that, you know, there's there are critics that say that children are rarely affected by COVID-19. So is this true? Talk to us about this in in, in you know straight up, and what are the short-term and long-term clinical outcomes of COVID for younger children for parents and caregivers who may be watching this?
4: Rana spoke to it earlier that. Kids have absolutely been affected by COVID. So first, if we think just in terms of their physical health, right? Kids have died of COVID. I think it's over 1600 kids have died of COVID. Kids have been hospitalized because they have COVID. Um, Kids have experienced long COVID. Children and adolescents have had prolonged impairment that affects their ability to go to camp, to go to school, to do their daily activities and participate in life and thrive. So kids have absolutely been affected by COVID kind of physically. I think it's also important that we always are holistic when we think about how kids are affected and we acknowledge how much COVID has disrupted kids' social and emotional well-being. That years out of school, time away from friends, the disruption of their daily routines, all of that also plays kids at risk for mental health impairments that we now see skyrocketing. We see more rates of suicide ideation and suicide attempts in our nation's EDs, emergency departments. And so I think kids have absolutely been affected by the pandemic in negative ways. And limiting the pandemic and trying to limit the further development of other strains of the virus by trying to limit further transmission helps kids in all aspects of their lives. And so when we think about what does it mean for us to actually start to address the impact on kids, it's both vaccination, right? Can help be a part of the armamentarium we have to prevent infection and limit disease in our community. But it's also that we need to think about what it means to live finally in a world maybe that doesn't have COVID that shapes all of our daily decisions. Like how, what's our end game for this pandemic? I think part of our end game has to be limiting transmission of disease so that kids can be well holistically physically and social emotionally
2: i was going to second the the notion i want to put a finer point on this idea that we have to live in that nuance between kids do great but some of them don't and we don't know how to predict which ones those are going to be i think parents are asking us to give them the best information we can so that they can make the best decision they can for their families and so i, I just want to go back to one thing that ria said which is I think pediatricians are saying the right thing when they say most kids navigate COVID quite well. I think they're also saying the right thing when they say a lot of them don't. And then the final thing I would say on that is not all of these infections are created equally. There are some kids who develop an infection, they navigate it well, but they don't mount a fantastic immune response because of such a mild infection. And so this is the place where vaccine stands in the gap to say we can do better to protect you for your next infection than the wild type infection that you just had.
0: I, I want to shift gears a little bit to talk about vaccine myths that you may be hearing around COVID-19 uh, vaccinations for children, and any tips you may have for how providers watching this can address other inaccurate information that impact, may impact a caretaker's decision to vaccinate for their children. Bill, anything here that comes to mind for you?
3: Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, inaccurate Information about vaccines didn't start with the pandemic, of course. And pediatricians have for a long time been combating misinformation or misunderstanding about the importance of vaccination for different vaccines. And this has obviously been magnified in part because of the way that discourse happens in this country these days. You know, it's really, for me, it's kind of a one liner. Anything that you think the vaccine might do, the virus does more. If you're worried about adverse effects like, Fever after the vaccine, the the virus causes much worse fever. This is all an argument for the vaccine as being much much more preferred to the to the infection. And everyone is eventually going to be exposed to this virus and potentially get infected.
1: I, I think the other thing is uh, to think about uh, secondary transmission, and secondary transmission to mm. vulnerable populations. Now, the, the the trials that we talked about from Moderna and Pfizer, we we have a handle in terms of disease, but we don't in terms of infection uh, in some of the participants nevertheless i think we can sort of say that the viral load that a child may have if they don't have if they don't have the vaccine may be higher than the than the viral load for, for a child who is immunized and just by default an extrapolation the child without vaccination with the higher viral load may then uh, run the risk of uh, transmitting virus to grandparents, transmitting virus to other vulnerable children, and talking about children with sickle cell, with asthma, uh, with diabetes, and then with, other, with a number of immunocompromising conditions, considering the number of children right now that we have uh, who've received transplants, for instance. And all of this, can be problematic. And so there's this consideration about secondary transmission and the theoretical benefit that if we were, if we could immunize more children from this age group, we may reduce what I call, we used to use in HIV literature, community viral load, and thereby reduce secondary transmission events to uh, these vulnerable populations across the lifespan.
0: Hello, my name is Dr. Mati Lechwayo-Davis. I'm the associate editor for the COVID Health Equity Resources section of the COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network. The COVID Health Equity Resources section offers a collection of educational and training materials, research articles, and resources that are curated to help medical professionals and institutions provide equitable COVID-19 care. Check us out at idsociety.org forward slash COVID 19 real time learning network forward slash COVID health equity resources. We should shift now and start talking a little bit more about why it is so important for children, especially those in minoritized and marginalized communities, to be vaccinated. We really need to make it clear why that is. So, Rhea, how would you put this across? How would you let folks know why this is so important right now?
4: We worry about communities that have high transmission, which means people are spreading COVID in their family and among their social networks and their neighborhood at their workplace. Communities that have high transmission also tend to be communities that have a lot of face time with the public, people who work and live in spaces that are concentrated and dense and where they serve people or are around people frequently. Those are people who can pass it to other people because COVID is airborne. So it's as Mm -hmm. simple as breathing the air around other people. And the more people you're around in your living or your working environment, the more likely you are to spread COVID. We know because of our nation's history of racial segregation and discrimination in the housing market, that people who live in dense concentrated areas tend to be racialized, minoritized groups. Because that's the case, that means that not just this pandemic, but past pandemics. People who lived in areas that were crowded and dense in inner cities and urban areas were where you saw higher spikes of flu, for example. So it's not just this virus, all infections spread better when people are in crowded spaces. And so the structural constraints around people who live in segregated communities, I think place them at greater risk of exposure, which then places them at greater risk of infection and the related complications. So I think that's why many of us have been, you included, Mati. thank you for your leadership around this. We've been so focused on ensuring that those communities, um, those racialized minoritized groups, groups of color, are the ones who have access to information about the vaccine and now therapeutics, have access to therapeutics and care in a timely manner, um, and have access to the other structural supports they need, like paid sick leave, leave if you're Kids are sick, so family leave and transportation and other support so that they can get the care that they need. Because we know that all of those things are what's necessary to make sure that we don't see inequities and morbidity and mortality.
0: That's 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 it. And that's at the heart of the issue. And unfortunately, we're seeing so much pandemic fatigue right now where it's really hard. First of all, it's hard to expect to keep people at a level of high alert for two and a half years. That's, that's just... And one of the most unfortunate and unfair parts of this, right? So it's about finding ways to continue educating the public whilst being empathetic and understanding about what two and a half years of urgency, urgency, urgency is like, right? Of the very real mental health and behavioral health challenges that, that you you talked about, Ria. So I appreciate that. Help me out, guys. Other reasons why we need to impress the importance of this vaccine
2: upon folks, buddy. One of the reasons I want to do it is because this isn't going to be our last pandemic. Mm-hmm. And while there's pandemic fatigue right now, what it really highlights is the fact that we don't necessarily do this very well during our rest period, right? In our non-pandemic time, we don't take care of those underserved the way that we we need to. And so I think what this might represent is a real touchstone for us to be able to say, whether it's at our basal rate or whether it's during pandemics, There are groups of people among us who don't have the same type of access as others to the basic needs of healthcare that we'd like to provide. We've got to figure out a way to fix that. And Mm -hmm. you know what? There's a lot of ideas and some of them are really good. Some of them aren't that good. We need to discuss them. We need to debate them. And we need to do that in a really civil, smart way, because there's a lot of smart folks out there and it's going to probably be really nuanced. It's probably going to be really complicated. It's probably going to cost some money. And all of those are going to have to factor into what are our target goals? What are our aspirational goals? But regardless, we need to know where we're going. And maybe the first part of that is to say, it's important because different groups among us have different risk factors for different diseases. We need to understand that. We need to understand why these things happen so that we can intervene appropriately and then i think the last part of it would be that all the things that we're learning about how to best communicate science how to best communicate to different populations different communities that's not going to only be relevant during a pandemic it's going to be relevant throughout the medical experience for folks so i think what we're doing now exposes us but hopefully uh, as bill called us to a, a hopefulness here maybe this is calling us towards something that makes us better as a medical enterprise in the U.S.
0: I couldn't agree more. Gosh, I want everyone on this panel to to run for office. I'm voting for everyone. These are the platforms I need. So please get that together with all of your free time. Can
4: I say one more thing on this question? Just really quick. I think So there were many of us, you included, Mati, who anticipated that there would be early inequities in vaccine rollout and in rollout of the therapeutics and in rollout of the communications campaigns, like up and down the border with how our nation faced COVID, we anticipated inequities. And I think we built systems to try to address those inequities that were successful and that was wonderful. And so we now see greater equity in vaccine penetration across Mm -hmm. racial and ethnic groups. But what even I didn't anticipate And something that we don't talk about enough, I think, in public health and healthcare right now is what's happening with white folks who particularly vote Republican Uh or who also identify as being an evangelical. Data from Kaiser Family Foundation tells us that that is a population who is at risk for COVID infection because of their low vaccination rates. And so while we can easily talk about the risk factors around Uh, segregation, like I mentioned, around dense crowded housing, around our nation's history of racism that place people in certain working positions, we don't have as much facile language around white supremacy, around how white folks make medical decisions when they're given choices. And if we can't talk about that, what it means to deny medical care when it's also made free to you, and when you have more access than other groups, we also don't reach those populations who then also come across become a part of community transmission for other high-risk groups?
0: So we're gonna have to purposefully t- get tangential because I'd, I've done this for two and a half years and I don't know that anyone's had the courage to really talk about this in this way, right? We've all seen the data. It was all about black and brown communities. And then we, Kaiser gave us the data and we saw the shift, right? It was white college uneducated, It was white Republican and it was white evangelical, and so have we done enough there? And what does that look like? And Rana, I see you. This is what I was hoping. I was hoping we could get intentionally tangential. So talk to talk to us a little bit about this.
1: Yeah, I I think given the polarization we've witnessed in the last, the alarming polarization we've seen in the last few years in the United States, we need to reach out to those communities. They have the vulnerability we've got to do a much better job in terms of perhaps explaining the science but in a positive light not with sort of some of the negativity that we've historically had for the last few years but come on this is the us 2020 january 2020 we've got this horrible virus coming in and within such a short space of time we're able to use that mrna platform and and get an efficacious vaccine that's relatively safe, at least in the short and medium term, across the lifespan and across all, all groups. And it reduced morbidity and mortality considerably. It made us straighten up our public health systems, and it made us think a little bit more about how research and healthcare research and public health should be done in terms of demographics. there's a lot to celebrate. I know there's over a million folks who've had to pass from this. And we talked about the morbidity and everything else, but we've also got to talk about the positives from here because it was, it has been a fantastic achievement. And I think that is a reflection of all of us. It's Mm -hmm. not just one particular group. It's all of us that have sort of pushed towards that. Yes, there's been negativity, I agree, But somehow, again, thinking about this from a community perspective, and I mean all community, we've got to change that narrative somewhere.
0: We absolutely do. And so, Buddy, what are your thoughts here to to add to that?
2: I think this is interesting. I, I think we would be naive to think that the polarization that we experience in our country right now on a number of issues would not affect us in medicine, too. And so Rhea, to your point about a a particular group of folks who would maybe think conservatively on some social issues. They may think conservatively in some religious issues. The argument from Saad Omer's group looking at moral foundation theory and what are some of the domains that people really pull from when they make a decision, not make a decision, when they they react in a way that, that leads them towards decreased vaccine readiness. The two domains that stand out are not protection from harm, which is one of the foundations of Jonathan Haidt's moral foundation theory, or fairness and equity, or even respect for authority. The two that drive, apparently, vaccine hesitancy are a desire for freedom and a desire for purity. In other words, don't tell me what I have to do as it relates to a vaccine, and don't put that thing in my body. I would rather take a natural infection. So, what are we to do in responding to that? It's not about telling them the science necessarily, although it is. We need to demystify it. We need to fix misinformation. I think we need to lean into those moral foundations. This is why the days of a presumptive model for vaccine conversations Mm -hmm. that may not play in certain populations. We may have to enter, we may have to be willing to enter into some shared decision making. What's the basis for that freedom? We have a group of individuals who would say, I don't like what my government is telling me that I should believe. And therefore I'm going to be unclear whether this falls into the category of what I feel like my government is telling me that I should believe, or if I have the right to think it myself. So that's one domain. And the second one on purity, we've got to show people the dangers of not a natural infection, but a wild type infection, right? A virus that's running rampant rather than a controlled dose of of vaccine. So I I think it goes back to the point that we're all different and we we get to celebrate that, but we also have to acknowledge that, that I think differently
1: than the others
2: on this panel. There are different things that motivate me. There are different things that are gonna make me wanna change my mind. Final piece is this idea that all of us wanna be good decision makers. We wanna think of ourselves as competent decision makers. If I go into an encounter and I tell someone they're wrong and they're foolish, That's so not going to work. But if I can give them new data and say, you know, I used to think that too, but now this, that gives them an opportunity to change their mind. It lets them off the hook. So how do we do that with COVID? You know, early on in the pandemic, our children's hospitals were empty. I mean empty. You know what? They're starting to fill up now with kids with COVID have respiratory illnesses that more match what we would typically see with the respiratory virus that now gives a parent a new opportunity to make a new decision rather than relying on the old data so all of this again takes time mm-hmm. it takes understanding the audience and maybe more than anything it takes a deep need for respect and civility that says your opinion matters to me the way you think about it matters to me i'm going to value you as a person so much I'm actually going to make the steel man argument for you and try to make your argument even better and then show you maybe where that argument breaks down you can't do that in a 15-minute office visit you can't do that in a 30-second psa you need thought leaders and communities that have the trust of their communities to then really live life with people and that that's just hard work
1: can i jump in here on, oh. on buddy's point i, I just and I, i'm just gonna i'm sorry to be a bit tangential and I'm also saying this as an outsider looking in, having come from the UK a number of years ago, what's the most powerful institution in the United States? It's the church across all communities. For me, it seems to be the church right across the board and know an area you sort of mentioned the evangelicals and the like, that for me would be the first group to go to, the clergymen across all communities, black, white, rural, uh, city dwelling, and perhaps start the discussion with those folks because they're the individuals that people are most likely to trust.
0: What I love about what you're suggesting here is that number one, we have models for this at the community level, clergy advisory boards that we've been engaging throughout the pandemic who have really helped those of us who are leading public health efforts and have academic backgrounds, and in so doing sometimes forget that we're a little bit removed, right? Um, from how folks engage and talk to each other, which is why I love the the fact that Buddy started off as an academic and then really broke it down in in words that we can all relate to. This is what training in fellowships and residency should look like, that type of flexibility and not this, this is your script approach, that it's okay to fail. The understanding that you are but a small part of this person's journey towards vaccine confidence that I love when Jasmine Marcellin talks about, she was at a vaccine clinic she started talking to someone she was so discouraged when she left for her shift that person didn't want a vaccine and then. a colleague called her and said it took two more shifts for someone to keep talking to this person and they did that's a shorter period of time, but in reality that happens a, lot, a spanning time but. In talking about, you know, I I think we need to take from the models from what we've done at community based approaches with clergy advisory boards, for example, and really uplift those. And also for people in medicine to understand sometimes we're not the messenger. So get out of your own way and empower those who will do a much better job than we will in certain instances. And what does that look like from a systemic level? Oh, Rhea, go ahead. And then I'm going to ask our final question. Only because I really.
4: I haven't been able to say this yet, and I really think it's important for people in medicine who are watching this to consider, especially as Buddy said, we have to be thinking about how we're preparing ourselves for the next pandemic. I think I can absolutely accept and I think it makes complete sense that there are groups in this country, particularly white folks who don't want anybody telling them what to do. But I can also say that that is the basis of white supremacy and that it's not just that folks don't want you telling them what to do about their health care, they don't want you telling them what to do about guns, they don't want other people to be able to pick who's president, it's actually a crisis that that is how some folks in this country make decisions. It's a crisis for them, it's a crisis for the rest of us, and so we in healthcare, as we prepare for this next pandemic, I earnestly believe that we have to confront The fact that white supremacy continues to shape how people make decisions. Mm. We have to figure out, and I'm not the scholar necessarily to do this, how to invite white folks into a collective living with a diverse United States to say it's not just you. It's all of us who are doing this and to figure out the terms on which people can accept that. But this is a project our country has been needing to do since our creation. And it's one that now we're running up against the morbidity and mortality associated with us, not really dealing with it.
0: And that's why I was willing for us to take this very real and necessary tangent, because when we look at the new normal, God, how glad will you be to never hear that term again? But as we talk about that, I want to take these very real issues into that, because these are the issues that we should be confronted with, right? The fact that we opened up a whole other avenue of marginalization that needs to be addressed, and that should challenge all of our systems in the way that we approach folks. All right, you did it to yourself. So this final question we're going to have to zip through, right? Most people have moved on from the pandemic. So where are we now? And what does the path ahead look like regarding equity? Difficult to to, to do in a couple of minutes, but I'm going to ask each of you to give me some closing thoughts around that. Bill, I'm going to come to you first.
3: The one thing that has not been brought up is that this is not isolated to equity in the U.S. This is Mm -hmm. global equity as well. And we need to think about that when we think about not just the current
0: pandemic, but anything that comes up in the future. Thank you. Rana, what do you think in this this closing topic? Where are we now? What does the path look look like ahead in regards to equity for our children?
1: We've been on quite a journey so far. Uh, I think we've still got quite a bit of a journey left. I take the positives that uh, we've been able to adapt so quickly and and, and sort of lead as well, talk, talking to that global aspect that Bill just mentioned. But I think it will, there are substantial uh, challenges
3: mm-hmm.
1: that we're coming up against now. We're talking about um, funding through, through Congress, but there'll yes. be other challenges that will come along. And we have to have an infrastructure that is ready to meet those challenges as and when they arise. Thank
0: you. Thank you. Yes, buddy.
2: Well, I would just make two points. One is we need to continue to fund the science. That's where we are in the pandemic, yes. uh, both the basic science, the clinical science, and then the implementation science that we've talked a little bit about here. One of those things that's happening is is making sure that we map the immune space around the spike protein of COVID, this so-called mm-hmm. antigenic cartography, so that we're not just responding to a variant or a subvariant, but we're actually predicting where the holes in our immune system mm-hmm. might fit identify those blind spots and then create vaccines that fill in that gap and what's going to be really important from an equity standpoint is that we have the same commitment to diversity within those clinical studies that we had at the beginning of the pandemic so that's where i hope that we can continue to keep our, our foot on the gas pedal to accelerate not just for pandemic studies but for all clinical research real equity and access for families, for individuals to be able to get access to to high quality clinical trials that might restore the trust that we unfortunately lost by our own doing uh, at so many different times in our past.
0: Gosh, that's so important. You took it to the science and I love that with an equitable lens. Rhea, close us out here.
4: I think if we took a 50,000 foot view, I think where we need to go is universal healthcare. Not having everybody in this country have equal access to healthcare right in their community And having us during a pandemic have to cobble that together to bring it right to people's doorsteps, to have mobile clinics, mobile vaccine outreach, that's a sign that our healthcare system wasn't evenly distributed. We knew that and we need to redistribute it. I think universal healthcare would mean we would be more prepared for the next pandemic because people would have a relationship with the provider that they go to for all of their care. And then through those networks, we would disseminate whatever resources people needed to know throughout their trusted local healthcare system instead of what we have now which is trying to cobble together something in an emergency for folks who we've long ignored.
0: Thank you so much. I knew this panel would be exactly what I what it has become, such an important conversation, a transformative conversation and a probing conversation that I hope folks at every level but especially those who are in the position to make decisions will pay attention to. Thank you so much for being with us today.
4: The views and opinions expressed here are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Involvement of CDC should not be viewed as endorsement of any entity or individual involved with the podcast.